Hello and welcome to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. Uh, my name is Bernardo Mite and with me as always is... Andrew Owen. And today we're going to be talking about Stravinsky and his composition um, Symphony in Three Movements. So, um, Igor Stravinsky, Igor uh, Fyodorovic Stravinsky was a pianist, composer and conductor, uh, greatly revered for his contributions to music. He is regarded as one of the most popular and influential composers of the 20th century. His works enjoyed wide popularity due to his use of innovative stylistic variations, which had changed many conventional concepts of composing and pushed the boundaries of music. Stravinsky's works were marked by distinctive rhythmic structures. According to him, music is, by its very nature, essentially powerless to express anything at all. Stravinsky was so passionate to learn more, no matter what it is, music, art, literature, life, he, li he, uh, he liked to learn about everything. Uh, he researched Russian fol folklore and classical literature and made use of his knowledge in his works. His studies were not confined to Russian literature. He researched extensively in English literature, including medieval literature, to satisfy his eager desire to learn more. Uh, he wrote an autobiography, uh, autobiography named Chronicles of My Life. So, Igor Stravinsky was born on uh, June 17th of, 17th of 1882 to the couple Anna Kolodovsky and Fyodor Stravinsky in Oranienbaum, or uh, municipal town in Russia and brought up in St. Petersburg. His childhood days were never a sweet memory as he felt neglected and hated. Music was the only thing that he was happy about, and he stated uh, he and he started taking piano lessons at a young age. Uh, he was so passionate about music that he never missed any chance to listen to music. Yeah, I mean, when he was very, very young, in 1890, he was hardly old at all. I think he was about eight years old. He happened to listen to Tchaikovsky's famous ballet, The Sleeping Beauty. Uh, this was the first time that he had ever heard an orchestra perform anything. So. Uh, he, he was very awestruck by the whole situation. He was he was really excited about it, and it really fueled his interest for music, which seemed to last his whole life, of course. He mastered Mendelssohn's Piano Concerto in G minor, and the following year he successfully attempted a piano reduction of Glazunov's string quartets. He's definitely a person who showed tremendous musical uh, ability very young in life, mm -hmm. uh, which tends to be the case with these famous composers. Yeah. <laughs> Though his parents saw his passion for music, they didn't want him to pursue it. Instead, they wanted him to become a lawyer, and, uh, and so thus he was, enrolled in he was enrolled to study law at the University of St. Petersburg in 1901. But he was not interested in that uh, quite as much as he was interested in music. So he only attended a few classes, really no more than 50 classes in four years. Uh, he, he concentrated pretty much most of his time on music. Since he couldn't take his law finals, he received only a half-course diploma in law in 1906, and after the death of his father, he started studying music seriously. Uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's just all it takes is a funeral to get music studies going. <laughs> so Stravinsky met Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, the famous uh, composer of the Russian Five, which we talked about before. Mm -hmm. uh, he was then the leading composer in Russia, he was sort of the... The, the big Russian composer of the time. Uh, and on his advice, Stravinsky refrained from entering the St. Petersburg Conservatory. Instead, he started learning from Rimsky-Korsakov himself, uh, and this continued until 1908. So that was about, oh, not terribly long of studying with Rimsky-Korsakov, but plenty to, to influence his style. Yeah, and I think the most important part here is that Nikoli, uh, that Korsakov, um, yeah, you know, told him not to go to the conservatory, of course, because he wanted the 
he, he wanted Stravinsky to, I guess, be original. Um, so uh, that Russian five coming out of him. Exactly. He wants to yeah. pure Russianness. Exactly. So um, uh, Stravinsky performed his work uh, Fiudartfis, which means fireworks, uh, in Saint Petersburg in 1909, and Sergei Diaghilev, uh, director of the Paris-based Ballet Russe, uh, happened to be in the audience and was quite impressed with it. Uh, Diaghilev commissioned Stravinsky to perform it. Uh, to perform in more concerts and later to compose a full-length uh, ballet score. Uh, this work was called The Firebird, uh, which was a great success. The ballet pr premiered in Paris in 1910 and he went there to attend it. Uh, later, his family joined him and they decided to stay there for, for quite some time in Paris. But after his time in Paris, he settled in Switzerland for a while. He stayed there uh, until 1920. While he was there, he worked on three major compositions. Uh, those are Petrushka, The Rite of Spring, and Pulcinella, which are three very different works from each other. Um, at least Pulcinella is very different from The Rite of Spring and Petrushka. Mm -hmm. um, all of these works turned out to be big hits. So, uh, I mean, these are really his big pieces of, uh, or at least the first two are big pieces of uh, his Russian period, and uh, Pulcinella is his neoclassical stuff. But still, it's... Um, there's still a wonderful, wonderful work uh, that are being uh, created here in Switzerland. Uh, Stravinsky traveled back to Russia to collect some research materials which were required for Le Nus, a ballet composed by him. Uh, he returned to Switzerland just before World War I because the borders were about to close due to the war. Uh, being one among the few Russian Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox community members settled in Switzerland, he is still remembered there. Yeah. By those communities. Yeah. So, as Russia refrained from joining the Bern Convention, Stravinsky faced some problems in collecting royalties for his performances and works. Uh, this led him to serious financial difficulties, and to get out of, of this contingency, Stravinsky approached the Swiss philanthropist Wagner uh, Reinhardt uh, for financial uh, assistance. Um, at the time, uh, he was writing uh, the Histoire du Soldat, which is the soldier's tale, and he conducted the first performance with Ernest. Ansermet in 1918. Did I say it okay? Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, Ernest Ansermet. But he's, he's, he's a brilliant, this is such a good work. L'histoire du soldat. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, so he conducted the first performance with Arnest, uh, sorry, Ernest Ansermet <laughs> in 1918 at the Municipal de Lausanne. Uh, this uh, entire event was sponsored by Reinhardt, and in return, Stravinsky dedicated th this work to him. The next year, Reinhardt again funded a series of concerts by Stravinsky in gratitude uh, of all the help. Stravinsky again dedicated another work, uh, three pieces for clarinet. Uh, Reinhardt, on the other hand, uh, founded a music library at his home dedicated to Stravinsky. So then Stravinsky had to move again. <laughs> No, he's, he's always traveling around. He's one of those composers that, might, as far as I know, might be the most cosmopolitan composer that, I, that I've ever heard of. Yeah. Uh, but Stravinsky went to France in 1920 and formed a music-based business relationship with Joseph Pleyel, who was by profession a piano manufacturer and composer. I can only assume he's part of the Pleyel & Sons uh, company. Uh, they started by Ignaz Pleyel back, uh, one of Mozart's rivals, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, and his son Camille Playel was the guy that married Berlioz's wife, uh, married Berlioz's fiance during the engagement, and really caused Berlioz to go off the deep end. Uh, the Playel family is always sort of meddling with music history, sort of the 
the Forrest Gump family. <laughs> it's always there somewhere. Um, but, but Pleo helps Stravinsky in collecting royalties, uh, thus providing him with a fixed monthly income and some studio space, which he used for composing and other activities. Stravinsky arranged and also recomposed some of his works for the Playella, which was a player piano that Pleiel made. Uh, some of the major works which Stravinsky did for the Playella include The Rite of Spring, Petrushka, Firebird, Le Nus, and Song of the Nightingale. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting thing to have, the, <laughs> have a composer so actively involved in reworking his own pieces for, uh, for strange new instruments like the Playella and the slow player piano. Yeah. Uh, later on, I mean, few composers would have done such a thing. I mean, later on, only... I can think of Kanlan Nankero, the guy that wrote all the player piano studies, punching the holes in the piano player roles mm -hmm. uh, to make these outrageously difficult pieces. But no, uh, yeah, Stravinsky was always, throughout his life, redoing his music, somewhat, sometimes due to copyright law because he wanted to keep making money for the music he composed. Yeah. From Paris, Stravinsky moved to the southern part of France for a brief period and then returned to Paris again in 1934 and lived at the Rue de Faubourg Saint-Honoré. Uh, he accepted French citizenship the same year. That man had more citizenships than Boy Scouts have merit badges, which is just <laughs> perfectly fine. Soon after this, Stravinsky faced the most grief-stricken period in his life since uh, his uh, eldest daughter, um, Lyudmila, was diagnosed with tuberculosis, uh, which, he probably, uh, which she probably contracted from his wife. Uh, Stravinsky was admitted to a hospital for five months for treatment. Lyudmila died in 1938 and his wife, Katerina, in 1939. Uh, and, and also his mother died during that same period. So it was a pretty rough time for Stravinsky, one of those big watershed, grief-stricken years for him. Yeah, man, what's going on with these composers? The same thing happened to um, the one we just talked about. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> who did we talk about? You know, you know who we talked about. Uh, Debussy. Debussy, right? Debussy. <laughs> <laughs> it took me that long, too. <laughs> so Stravinsky met a lady named Vera de Bozet in 1921, who was a dancer and an artist. Uh, much before Katerina's death, and they um, came closer, forming a very strong relationship. Vera was married to another man at a time, and later she left her husband and became Stravinsky's mistress. Another relationship with Debussy. <laughs> so, however, Stravinsky managed to spend time with uh, his first family and uh, with Vera. Uh, during that period, Stravinsky got an opportunity to work on the Symphony in C for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and this helped him to develop professional relationship um, with some key people in the United States. In 1939, Stravinsky got an offer to lecture at Harvard University for a year. Uh, he then moved to the United States during World War II and took his love, uh, Vera, as well. So then, you know, as a result, Stravinsky goes to America. He, he goes to yet another country and, and uh, becomes a citizen. So uh, Stravinsky chose to settle in Los Angeles and he remained there for the rest of his life. Uh, it was in '45 that he became a United States citizen. So at first, Stravinsky found adapting to the American life quite difficult, and, and so he surrounded himself with Russian friends and acquaintances. But gradually, in order to preserve his intellectual life, he was drawn to the company of many musicians, uh, writers, poets, and composers, uh, which were settled in Los Angeles. Some of them include Otto Klemperer, Thomas Mann, Franz Werfel, uh, George Balkine, uh, Arthur Rubinstein, and many others. Uh, he settled in Los Angeles, um, and while he was there, he, Stravinsky worked for famous orchestras like uh, the L.A. Philharmonic, and also performed with other concerts. Yeah, and other concerts. Yeah, so he was he was becoming very active there in that that area. Yeah. The same city as Schoenberg was working in, actually. Yeah. So uh, while he was in Los Angeles for five, for five years, what? 
I think it was six years, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, Schoenberg died in 51, so. Yeah. So, while he was in Los Angeles, he also met the famous British poet, uh, W.H. Auden, and planned to write an opera with him. It was during this time that he met Robert Kraft, a conductor and musicologist. Uh, they became close to each other and became lifelong friends. Uh, Kraft played different roles as interpreter, uh, chronicler, and assistant conductor uh, for most of Stravinsky's uh, musical and social activities. Stravinsky was part of the musical score for the movie The Court Jester, in, which was released in 1956. Uh, and also in 1962, Stravinsky went to St. Petersburg, which was at the time known as Leningrad, as we've talked about before, uh, to perform a series of concerts. He then uh, went to Moscow uh, and met many renowned musicians like Dmitry Shostakovich and Adam Kachaturian. Uh, and then in 1969, he shifted to New York, where he lived for the rest of his life. Just jumped all around. And really, Stravinsky had so many just bizarre friends. <laughs> he knew everybody, and everybody knew him. And Stravinsky photographs are quite collectible. They're, he's always with someone you wouldn't expect, be it a pope or a Zsa Zsa Gabor or, or just whoever. Mm -hmm. And of course, we do have some nude photographs from when he was skinny dipping. So if you ever <laughs> want to see a composer's naked body, he's... His is available on the internet. And his, so, he also has the mugshot, too. Oh, and there's also the mugshot. <laughs> and he got a little arrested a little while back. It was because he, he recomposed the, 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 the United States uh, National Hymn, right? What, was it something like that? I think that's what it was. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he did compose, uh, he did... Uh, An arrangement. Uh, arrange, yeah. arrange the, the Star Spangled Star, Banner. Star Spangled Banner. And, it's, and it sounds great. It's just a little, little different. Yeah. It just sounds a little fun. <laughs> Uh, so Stravinsky was uh, betrothed to Katerina Nosenko, who was his cousin, uh, in 1905. This is way back, uh, just getting into some of some of the random details of his personal life. Back in 1905, he was uh, engaged to be married to Katerina Nosenko, who was his cousin. And, and he married her in 1906. Nothing, nothing wrong with marrying your cousin. It's kind of fun sometimes. Uh, this was against the Orthodox Church's wish. This marriage between first cousins was not was not acceptable in Orthodox customs. Uh, how backward! You know, uh, uh, the the company welcomed their first baby Fyodor in 1907 and their second child Lumilan in uh, 1908. While in Switzerland, his wife gave birth to their third baby Sulima in 1910, who later in life became a composer. Uh, in 1913, their next child, Marina Milena, was born. Sadly, Katarina was diagnosed with tuberculosis, as was mentioned before, and was taken to a Swiss sanatorium and licensed for confinement. His daughter, Ludmilla, who also contracted tuberculosis, died in 1938. Uh, and his wife, Katarina, passed away the next year, as we mentioned before. Yeah. Uh, Stravinsky married his mistress of many years after moving to America in Bedford, married her on March 9, 1940. Much, much after, I mean, 40 years, I mean, 35 years after his first marriage. Yeah. Uh, he died in 1971 at the age of 88 and then was buried in uh, the San Michel Cemetery Island in Venice. Or San Michele, I guess we're going to use. You see the Venice. Yeah. You learn about the language before you. <laughs> San Michele Cemetery Island in Venice. Yeah. So, uh, what were uh, Stravinsky's religious beliefs? Though he was never spoken about his faith, uh, he maintained a deep respect for his religion. He was a bit alienated from the religious uh, frame of life for some time, but he returned back uh, to his faith, faith in God after he met a Russian priest, uh, Reverend uh, Father Nicholas. Um, in a major part of his life, he maintained a proper Russian Orthodox Christian way of living. Yeah, um, I guess this sort of segues into actually talking about some of Stravinsky's music. 
if, if if you analyze Stravinsky's compositions, uh, you can clearly see three different phases in his life. We, we uh, sort of mentioned them earlier. Uh, during the initial stages, he expressed a tendency to use large orchestra, and his scoring pattern was marked, uh, markedly influenced by Rimsky-Korsakov. Uh, his works have uh, exhibited development in the stylistic aspect. Um, he... He had used a style influenced by Rimsky-Korsakov and the Firebird and also pan-diatonicism when he used the diatonic scale without being limited to functional tonality. Uh, so there he used, uh, as a result, he uses uh, freely dissonant sounds without conventional resolutions. Uh, later on in the Rite of Spring, he adopted polytonality. If Firebird was made on imaginative orchestration, in the Rite of Spring he attempted to depict a brutality of a pagan musically. I mean, this, he's always de trying to depict some degree of brutality if he's wanting to do that, and he does it quite effectively with the use of strong, unexpected rhythms and big or big orchestrations and those kinds of things. Yeah, and we're about to see that in the piece for today as well. So in the oh, yeah. yeah, so in the next period, uh, Stravinsky adopted a neoclassic style. Uh, his work Myra is believed to be the first work based on this style. His last uh, neoclassical work was an opera. The Rake's Progress, uh, composed in 1951. Uh, he then moved to serialism. Uh, during this phase, he used uh, serial techniques such as the dodecaphonic ones, uh, also called uh, 12 tone serialism. Uh, and this is where all 12 tones are used democratically in a pattern. Um, this style is well demonstrated in his work like uh, Cantata and Septet. Um, he had he, he had experimented with many styles in composing using different techniques, uh, rhythm and harmony, which is why he is considered to be uh, one of music's truly epochal innovators. Um, Stravinsky's composition exhibits motivic development in which the music, musical figures are repeated in different guises throughout the entire composition or a section of composition. Uh, famous musician Andrew J. Brown uh, had commented on Stravinsky's experiments with rhythms. He said, Stravinsky is perhaps the only composer who has raised uh, rhythm in itself to the dignity of art. Yeah, he is a very rhythmic composer. Uh, and as you said earlier, the, in 1951 he switches straight into serialism. That, that also happens to be the year that Schoenberg dies. <laughs> Schoenberg invented serialism, or he invented 12-tone uh, serialism specifically, the idea of uh, how 12-tone works. And, uh, if, you're, if you want to know how 12-tone music works, uh, Vi Hart has a great video on YouTube uh, that discusses it over the course of like 30 minutes or an hour. It is fantastic. But, is that, but when Schoenberg... Is that the one that, you showed me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a good one. It's pretty good. You can, it teaches anybody, uh, layman or otherwise, how to, how to understand 12-tone music. But as soon as Schoenberg dies in 1951, Stravinsky takes it on, and most of his music after 1951 is serial. Uh, it is a little, uh, little harder to digest for, for those who don't enjoy 12-tone music. Yeah. <laughs> so on to talking about uh, which of his works are probably the most important. Uh, these are all sort of representative of different parts of his life. Uh, so in 1908, Fireworks was his, his first big composition. Uh, the Firebird Ballet was a big composition. Pietrushka, 1911. Uh, the Rite of Spring, which is uh, obviously probably his most important work. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'd say it's definitely, easily definitely. Uh, it's just a, it's a ballet about um, uh, pr primitive Russians or just a very very ancient Russians who are just doing their thing, doing their religious ceremonies and whatnot, and praising the spring. They're, they're, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, they're kind of letting it come in, and a, and a woman, uh, a virgin, uh, dies by dancing herself to death. It's just a classic story. <laughs> uh, and no, this it caused a riot when it was pre- premiered. It was a big, big thing. Uh, 1923, he wrote Octet. He in 1927, he wrote Oedipus Rex. Octet is considered, I think, his first neoclassical work, or at least uh, one of his first neoclassical works. Mm-hmm. Uh, just trying to infuse older styles with uh, yeah. with his sense of pandiatonicism and, and advanced rhythm. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1927, he wrote Oedipus Rex, uh, which is about a king by the name of Oedipus. <laughs> uh, need I say more? Uh, Wikipedia, if you don't know what, what that's about. <laughs> um, 1930, uh, he writes The Symphony of Psalms, which is a very well-known work and frequently performed. Uh, 1951, he writes The Rake's Progress, which is right there at the start of the serial period. Uh, in 1957, he writes Aegon, uh, which is one of his... Uh, the later his works get, the less people are aware of him, because, uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's sort of how it goes. Yeah. Uh, and plus, serialism is hard to enjoy for a lot of people. And his Requiem Canticles, which he wrote in 1966. So those are probably his most important works, uh, just from start to finish. Yeah. So um, he received so a lot of awards and accolades. Uh, some of them, um, we're gonna mention uh, some of them. So Stravinsky was awarded the Sony Award, uh, Denmark's highest musical honor in 1959. Uh, he, yeah, don't diss Denmark's ability to give a good award. Let me tell you. <laughs> and he was also uh, posthumously honored with the Grammy Award for Lifetime Achievement in 1987, the year I was born. Hey, that's that's when I was born. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Uh, then he was also uh, inducted into the National Museum of Dance, um, the C.V. Whitney Hall of Fame in 2004. Uh, and he was also honored by the United States Postal Service uh, with a two-cent Great American Series postage stamp in 1982. Is that all he was worth? Just Two, two cents. cents. Well, two cents in 1982 maybe was worth more. <laughs> yeah, I, see, I think you have to put Stravinsky's face on the envelope like 12 times to get a letter across. <laughs> Uh, so we move now into the composition for today, which is the Symphony in Three Movements, uh, which was composed between 1942 and 1945. Uh, the length is approximately 20 minutes. Uh, it's orchestrated for piccolo, two flutes, two oboes, three clarinets, the third clarinet also playing bass clarinet, uh, two bassoons, a contrabassoon, four horns, three trumpets, three trombone, a tuba, a timpani, bass drum, a harp, piano, and a strings. So just normal, normal, a normal orchestra. And it was premiered by the New York Philharmonic Orchestra under Stravinsky conducting uh, on January 24th of 1946. Yeah, in 1942, two years after completing the symphony in C, Stravinsky began on a commission from the New York Philharmonic. Um, Work progressed fitfully with the composer changing his mind many times about the shape the work would take, with the only certainty then being that it would include a, a concertante part for solo piano. Yeah. What ultimately evolved into the symphony in three movements was not completed until 1945, during the final days of the World War II, uh, under the influence, as the composer wrote, of our arduous time of sharp and shifting events, of despair and hope, of continual torments, of tension and, at last, sensation of relief. In World War II, men perfected machinery of mass destruction to match their basest brutality. Amidst ever more appalling horrors, man responded with music uh, to match his highest aspirations. Uh, so composed in the haven of the, U- the USA, Stravinsky's response to specific cinematographic uh, uh, impressions of the war earned some disdain 
as as though we had no right to inf to reflect those uh, these reflected experiences. Yet these stri yet the stricture never applies elsewhere. Otherwise, there wouldn't be say a single requiem. And anyway, he did encounter the brown shirts in Munich during the early 30s. Uh, etched into his memory, this frightening incident became the root of his indignation enshrined in uh, the symphony. Uh, a lot of a lot of what I'm saying now are quotations from Stravinsky. Yeah. So nevertheless, Stravinsky remained a confirmed objectivist, insisting that uh, it is not programmatic. Uh, composers combine notes, that is all. Oh, how and what uh, form uh, the things of the world uh, are impressed upon the music is not for them to say. This is a quote from Stravinsky. And we do find a certain cin cinematographic detachment uh, resulting from uh, unremitting concentration of musical process, processes. Uh, yet there's also something about the relentless drive, obvious in the outer movements uh, and even lurking, lurking within the stately sounding andante, something that attracts, fascinates and curdles the blood. Yeah. Well, I mean, the style of the piece uh, is it's, it's basically the rite of spring viewed through the glass of Stravinsky's uh, subsequent stylistic forays, uh, specifically his neoclassical stuff, the neo-baroque, neoclassical, Greek classical stuff. Um, it's an, which is an endless involving amalgam of polyphony, uh, linear development, rhythmic transformation, uh, elegance, uh, lots of violence. He's, he's into that kind of stuff. I mean, just musically, I don't know about his personal life. Uh, but there is, there's not a melody within earshot, yet Stravinsky performs such manipulative miracles with uh, rudimentary motivic cells that you scarcely notice uh, until, uh, until you start feeling this, uh, maybe a Russian folk tune come out of nowhere. And, and everywhere there's that trademark Stravinsky sound, that, that sort of that, that sort of dry sound, the product not of just of his unique ear for sonority, but also of the very specific attacks he notates. A prime example being the long stabbing crescendo near the beginning of the symphony. Yeah, uh, Stravinsky's doubts about the work's status probably stem from the uh, disparate uh, provenance of its parts. Uh, according to Stravinsky, three symphonic movements would have been uh, a more exact title. Uh, he originally, originally drafted the first movement for a piano concerto, uh, while the second, with its prominent harp, was intended to, um, but uh, ultimately didn't, uh, accompany a vision of the Virgin Mary in the film uh, Song of Ber Bernadette. However, uh, with this cleverness, he added a third movement uh, closely related to the first, binding them through the, that common thread of uh, reaction to events and uh, the creation of an obligato relationship between piano and harp by converging them as at the finalis turning point. The result is uh, more of a symphony than many that claim the title. Because it's in three movements, so that's, uh, you know, this, that's something that hadn't been done since, since the classical, you know, after the classical everything is usually, if it's a symphony, it's in four movements, so that's why uh, there is uh, some kind of, there is some, um, there's some problems with what people think about if this is a symphony or not. It's harkening back. Yeah. So in Dialogues and Diary from 1964, uh, Stravinsky, well Stravinsky, the older he gets, the more he, he looks back at the past like it was some sacred experience. Right over there is where I first thought of the first chord of Le Sacre de Pardon. He's just, he's very melodramatic about his early life. And so, uh, in, in his work, uh, in his 1964 Dialogues and a Diary, uh, Stravinsky goes into just a 
it's very vivid detail regarding inspiration and the program of the symphony. Uh, he, he also I mean, he, he reiterates the notion of it being inspired by a film. He writes, quote, Each episode in the symphony is linked in my imagination with a specific cinematographic impression of the war. So thus, the aggressive first movement, a free interpretation of classical sonata allegro with an introduction and a coda, uh, it was inspired by a war films of scorched earth tactics in China. Uh, the, the central episode for clarinet and piano was conceived as a series of instrumental conversations to accompany a cinematographic scene showing the uh, Chinese people scratching and digging in their fields. In its jaggedness and anger, this highly chromatic music is far removed in sound and color from its diatonic equivalent in the symphony in C. Here, neoclassical form meets uh, Rite of Spring rhythmic intensity, if not the ballet's rhythmic complexity. Yeah, so uh, the first movement, uh, which is also called the Overture, and the title is Overture Allegro. Allegro is just the, 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 um, the time, the tempo of the piece. So he said that it's inspired by a war film, uh, of course, uh, air tactics in China, like you said, uh, with a merged six notes, Stravinsky grabs you by the throat and thrusts you into a seething cauldron of uh, purposeful pr propulsion. Uh, that initially, that sorry, that initial phrase is seemingly the only subject, although Stravinsky simulates sonata form, um, which uh, with a, a horn call, uh, which masquerades uh, a second subject. Um, uh, there's a chattering bassoon herald. Uh, which uh, is kind of like that the, the, the development section, um, which is uh, uh, permeated by obsessive obsessive jabberings, and uh, there is a, a, a varied reprise uh, which is marked by the stabbing crescendo. Finally, only the jabbering remains, uh, a grisly crackling of bass clarinet, uh, as the music burns itself out uh, in the chord, in the last chord. Yeah. Um. So the second movement is called Andante Interlude, l'istesso tempo, the same tempo. Uh, the intended contrast uh, is, uh, well, there, there, is, there does seem to be a great deal of contrast to the first movement. Uh, the air is cool and classical. There's, uh, there's melody that goes over a grounded bass line. Uh, there's, there's a chorale that announces sort of this more ethereal phase. Uh, then it recalls the opening, uh, only now the contours become troubled. It's clear blue sky stained by gathering grim clouds. Uh, I just love the, love the imagery that we, that we can run into in, in descriptions of this work. Mm -hmm. uh, so movement two is difficult to conceive as having any relationship to uh, an apparition of the Virgin. If it does such an event, it's surely uh, done tongue-in-cheek, which is unlikely, uh, with an almost Rossini-like lightness. So a seven-measure interlude leads to the finale. Yeah, and then the last moment, which is titled Commoto, um, which is with, with energy. Uh, Stravinsky wrote, uh, the beginning is a reaction of newsreels, of goose-stepping soldiers, the square march beat, brass band instrument, instrumentation, and, grotesque, and a grotesque tuba crescendo. Uh, or are related to uh, those abhorrent pictures. Again, uh, there's arguably only one subject, and even uh, that uh, derives from the first movement's theme with a more ep episodic variational sequence, uh, a la rondeau, uh, reflecting uh, its more graphic nature. The opening's Nazi arrogance becomes sardonically transformed and comically grinds to a halt. Calmly, uh, piano and harp start a fugue. Uh, and Stravinsky said, this um, and the end of the symphony are associated with the rise of the Allies uh, and the final, uh, rather, two commercial D-flat 6 chord, 
uh, tokens my extra exuberance in the uh, allied tr uh, triumph. Uh, the final chord, uh, by the way, is spread out over six octaves, um, six op more than six oct octaves in the orchestra. Big hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, it's a neat piece. Yeah, I, I, I actually had never heard this piece till like three weeks ago. I heard it for the first time, and I really, very, I really like it. Um, I mean, if you like Stravinsky, you're probably gonna like this piece. Um, if you like, obviously, the Rite of Spring and uh, the Firebird, those kind of pieces, you're probably going to like this piece. Um, yep. As long as you have something to listen, as long as you know what to listen for and how to enjoy it, you're going to be fine. If you're just listening to it with the expectation of just it sounding nice, you're not going to probably find the same satisfaction. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But it, it's, it's neat. He does lots of new, exciting things, lots of, uh, lots of dryness sometimes, lots of... I mean, it feels very... Um, it's very jagged throughout, uh, but it's, it's a neat work. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about this piece? I, th I think I'm good. All right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode. Of course, you can find us on YouTube if you want to watch the video, or if you're listening, you're probably uh, already there on iTunes. Uh, if, just so you know, the, the YouTube version also has images and some other things. Some, some, sometimes I put links, links on there, uh, so you can choose your poison, right? Uh, so, if you have any questions or if you want to ask us anything, um, you can email us at symphonypodcast.gmail.com and um, we're going to post the episode every Saturday or Sunday of every week um, and hopefully we can figure all our technical uh, things soon so that we don't have any problems with that. Alright, um, we're good? We're good. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Yes.